0: Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. My name is Ben DiPietro. I'm the editor of LRN's ENC Pulse newsletter. I hope you can find it and subscribe and tell a friend to subscribe as well. With me today is Darja Galante. She's the Senior Business Integrity Manager and Regional Investigations Lead for Nokia, and she's based in Germany. Hello, Darja. How are you today?
2: Hi, Ben. I'm great. Thank you. How are
1: you? Doing well. I really appreciate your time. And uh, like I just mentioned, you're on uh, halfway around the world from where we are. How are things in. Uh, Germany
2: today? I think it's pretty good. So Germany recovered from, from the COVID quite fast. We just have to wear the mask when we're going to the grocery stores. Uh, but for the rest, people are uh, seem to be very happy and active again. It's, it's, it's a great, great place to be right now, I feel.
1: Uh, well, you're making us all feel jealous while we're <laughs> in our homes. What sparked your interest in ethics and compliance? And uh, tell us a little bit about the path you took to get to your position at Nokia and what you actually do in your present role
2: I feel like it was it was a pure accident uh, the way I ended up in compliance the reason for that is I've studied my legal education and then I did uh, study economics so I kind of never never thought I'm going to end up working as a lawyer as a compliance manager but At my first workplace, working with Sirona, which is a former part of Siemens, a medical device company, they discovered my legal background and there was a need for someone who's going to lead the global third party onboarding and due diligence program and would develop it. And yeah, they just got me there. And uh, that's the way the compliance journey started. I feel the best and most interesting part of of working in compliance is sort of the combination of those two worlds, that operations and opportunity to talk to different stakeholders, different teams, and different business owners across the organization. And from other side, you you sort of interact with this legal world dealing with uh, legislation, regulatory teams, and legal department. And that's what was so fascinating for me in the end. I feel it's a pity that in most of the universities, at least in Europe, compliance is not being taught as a discipline. So the only chance... Compliance professionals sort of get to know compliance is for starting as a lawyer in a big corporation or, you know, talking with their potential clients working in a big law firm. So my journey is a bit different, but um, I ended up there. Basically, the way I came to Nokia is interesting. So I I did work with Sirona for some time. Afterwards, we had a big merger and we needed someone who would go to uh, China and would help the regional team to develop their Compliance program. Um, it it was not that mature, and I volunteered, and uh, that's how my Asian journey started. I've spent an extensive amount of time with Dansply Sirona, working in China and Hong Kong, also in other uh, geographies across Asia Pacific. After this long and, and and amazing journey, I switched to a smaller company that was sort of a rising star in the furniture business, and I helped them to build up their compliance system from the scratch and. Then that was a, just a pure accident where I met a former business integrity head, Femi Thomas, and he was saying, hey, we're searching for, for someone who would help us with, with some big projects and investigations.
1: How has that experience of working all over the world helped to shape how you approach your job? And is the job the same when you're working in Asia as it is now when you're working in Europe?
2: The, the biggest one is, is, I guess, the speaking about compliance, uh, speak up culture. So that's what most of the compliance professionals coming from a different non-Asian background are are facing working with Asian companies or in in Asia in particular uh, through this cultural difference, through this collectivistic culture and and the culture of keeping the face they call it. People are really afraid, and people are not willing to speak out because they are afraid to to lose their reputation or recognition of the of the team members of the of the of their line manager, for example. So I feel such things as a targeted global campaigns addressing people saying, oh, you know, use our compliance hotline just doesn't work in Asia the way they work in Europe. Working there is rather a very uh, approaching very small groups or individuals, uh, using indirect communication, trying to sort of melt into their country, understand their fears. Yeah, it it just doesn't work to approach the whole group and ask them to do something. So it requires way more time, effort and cultural sensibility in order to make it work. Whereas obviously in Europe, there are also certain differences, but Europeans are more willing to speak out, fight for their rights, report misconduct and and, and sort of uh, they're they're not afraid of of retaliation as such as, as much as the people in Asia are afraid of. Another big difference is the regulatory landscape. So in Asia, you have to be prepared for immediate change in legislation. So one day there is one rule, next day there is something completely different. And the way you you react in it is crucial. You have to be quick. You have to cooperate with with the compliance and legal community in order to sort of predict these changes or, or, you know, listen to some rumors or potential gossip that is coming Whereas in Europe, it, it's a, it's a process, right? We, you will never experience such rapid and unexpected change coming up. Working in in, in different geographies sort of allows you to develop this this out of the box thinking. So you, as you always have to, you're always challenged dealing with the same problem, but you need to find different solutions for this problem. So it helps you to sort of rearrange the way your your brain cells are getting wired in order to be a bit more creative and and a bit more flexible when it comes to to problem solving.
1: So what is the job of a business integrity manager? And how has COVID changed that part of your job? And you're also involved in investigations. And so how has COVID changed the process that you're using to conduct those investigations as well?
2: I would say the the job of a business integrity manager is not, not much different from a job of a compliance and ethics manager. So... That's just day to day business, less operational, more project based. And, and the main focus of my work right now are investigations. And for sure, through COVID, we face some challenges. Conducting face to face interviews is, is nearly impossible right now. Many locations are working from a distance, creating this trustful connection while being in one room. This is something which has been very challenging right now. Nevertheless, we never had the culture of switching on the camera while doing those interviews on WebEx. So it was usually an audio connection. And now people are actually doing it voluntarily. I feel like everybody are missing this personal touch, missing seeing other human beings around them. So it, it was possible to at least partially replace. This uh, face-to-face atmosphere with with the video connections, but it's definitely way more challenging to not being able to read the face expression, you know, the mimics uh, and and, and the rest of the nonverbal communication that is usually very helpful during our interviews with suspects or witnesses or anyone else.
1: How do you compensate for that? And then, are there any advantages to doing investigations that don't involve sitting in front of someone?
2: What became easier is that obviously all of us are people, and we need to stay objective, and 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 uh, we need to sort of let out our personal emotions or feeling about the the person who is being a subject of investigation. And it's way harder to do that if you're sitting in one room with this person, you're talking to this person, and you sort of might feel empathetic, and and you sort of need to fight with yourself not to let this personal emotions or feeling to cloud your judgment. And while doing it over a distance, it, it's it's way easier to overcome this uh, this difficulty by not creating too much of this contact of this personal touch conducting the investigation. So I feel it's it's definitely brought some some ease to the investigation process of conducting it virtually.
1: Are you seeing an uptick in reporting during the pandemic? And why or why not you think that might be happening? And what can be done to ensure people who do come forward don't face retaliation? It sounds like you've got stronger laws there for, for one that certainly make that easier.
2: When we first heard about COVID, obviously, nobody was prepared. So, we faced a great spike of cases related to this topic, right? So people didn't know if they can work from home. They, they didn't know if they uh, should go to the office and so on and so forth. So rather HR related cases. So the hotline was really booming. It, it was enormous amount of cases we needed to distribute between HR, ourselves, health and safety organization, and so on and so forth. But then the things got settled, you know, we, we got our plans and how we accommodate people and their needs for mm-hmm. uh, all this difficult time, it got way less. So first it was enormous amount, then it was way less. And I would say at this point, we are back to that normal numbers, normal amount of cases we usually would get throughout the time. So there was definitely a spike because people were nervous and uncertainty added up to the levels of stress people experienced.
1: Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about what's going on beyond COVID. Obviously one of the things taking center stage is a focus on racial equality and justice. So how are Nokia's diversity and inclusion programs evolving as this focus on Black Lives Matters increases? And what are the companies DE and I goals, and have the goals been changed, or is there discussion of changing what's going on as a result of Black Lives Matter?
2: At Nokia, we do have a very strong and very developed DE and I program, and you know the, our, our motto is diversity makes us stronger, and that's an absolutely true. So it's not a secret that teams that are diverse perform way better. And alone in my department, uh, we have approximately eleven nationalities gathered together, and It's just such a productive and creative environment to work in. But, you know, diversity is is not enough, right? So uh, we do need inclusion and inclusion is a process. So I'm not saying Nokia's program is perfect, but I think what's hard to understand is that culture shift should happen gradually, right? Alone, the good training program or, uh, you know, bias program doesn't help you. You can't just get people together click the finger, and everybody are suddenly going to be tolerant and non-biased, right? And, And that's what we are working on currently. So we are improving our communications program with different Yam Jams, with our leadership team, with inclusion podcasts, where people are actually going live and telling about their stories, about their inclusion experience at Nokia. We do have an advanced training program, which is called Navigating Bias with Inclusion, where we're trying to teach people how to be more tolerant or understand other 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 people better right so and diversity for us doesn't only mean nationality or doesn't only mean gender it's also sexual orientation political views and religion for example so mm-hmm. in particular for ethical questions we do have a special program that is called able so our aim is to enhance the professional educational and cultural development of communities with African descent. They have a lot of events uh, where people of different of different groups are partic- participating together. We have an empathy training and so on and so forth. So I'm really happy to see that Nokia didn't have to actually change much about the program because it was always our one of our top priorities to to make this community, Nokia community, close and 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 sort of tolerant towards each other.
1: What measurements are needed to accurately assess the success of a DE and I program? Is it solely how many people of color or different genders work in the company? How many are in senior management? Or appointed to the board, or does it go beyond those metrics? And how do we accurately measure what needs to be measured?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I definitely don't think the number the number of people of color in the organization is is a good indicator of uh, how how the program is working. What I think we always have to remember is that when when a person goes out in uh, the end of the day and closes the door of the company, it it's still he or she still walks into the society, right? So what we as a company could and should do is to fight those unconscious biases by instantly reminding each and every employee of what is the impact of what happened, for example, to George Floyd, and to remind them to think and consciously address their biases. I think if if this message just goes through to each and every employee, at least to every second or third employee, and they go out, out there outside their workplace and, and just going to try to fight those biases by, for example, mentoring uh, a person with an African descent or, or helping their neighbors or anything else that would help the uh, community. That's already something that would say our program is a success. So it's not just about hiring 10 people of an African descent. It's, it's about proactively thinking, analyzing, and improving the situation, not only within the company, but also outside the company in being incentivized by certain initiatives happening at Nokia, for example.
1: I want to thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk with us today. It was very interesting to get different perspectives from uh, other parts of the world and really appreciate it and uh, wish you luck going forward and stay safe.
0: Thank you so much, Ben. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning, ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.